Hey, I'm Natalie Parker. Recently, I reread Mark Twain, Samuel Longhorn Clemens' Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. The first time I read this book, I was taken in by the witty yet dark commentary on the underbelly of American society. This time, I focused on something else, the character of Jim, the slave who tries to attain his freedom. In case you're unfamiliar with Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or need a quick refresher, here's the basic plot. A boy around the age of 14 named Huckleberry Finn is generally discarded by the society around him sometime in the mid-19th century antebellum period. His father is a drunkard and a crook, and the widow who takes him in is harsh on him. His only close friend, the only person who hasn't let him down the same way, is a boy named Tom Sawyer. One day, Huck's father kidnaps him, and Huck fakes his death in order to escape and goes to hide on a nearby island. There, he meets Jim, a runaway slave. Huck agrees to help Jim gain his freedom. The two of them have a myriad of adventures, and at one point they go floating around on the Mississippi River with two con men, one of whom pretends he's a duke and the other of whom pretends he's a king. In the end of the novel, Jim is recaptured, Tom Sawyer shows up where, Jim, where Huck Finn is hiding, and the two of them work to free Jim using a complex plan. They're successful, but Tom gets shot while they flee. Jim decides that the right thing is to get Tom a doctor, so he gets captured again. Tom reveals while he's recuperating that Jim's owner freed him two months ago, and then Huck and Jim light out for the territory, famously. That's it. Now, what exactly do I find so interesting about Jim? I find it interesting that he's so bland. More specifically, Jim is passive to a painful degree. This ready willingness to yield to the wills of the characters around him that Twain endows him with is two-pronged. First, Jim is generally passive and frequently gives in to Huck. Second, Jim, despite being a fully grown adult, is unnaturally childlike. Jim's overall passivity is first obvious when he and Huck discover a wrecked steamboat. Jim does not want to get anywhere near it. On page 50, he says this, I don't want to go fooling along air no rack. Like as not, there's a watchman on that rack. This statement does not seem passive on its own, but the fact is that Jim gives in to Huck's desire for adventure after Huck insultingly compares him to Tom Sawyer in response. Do you reckon Tom Sawyer would ever go buy this thing? Not for pie, he wouldn't. He'd call it an adventure. That's what he'd call it, and he'd land on that wreck if it was his last act. I wish Tom Sawyer was here. With that, Jim relents, even though Huck has essentially told him that he isn't as good as Tom Sawyer. Huck is outright rude, and Jim can't bring himself to resist. Later on, Jim and Huck are traveling on the Mississippi River, and Jim is elated at the prospect of his near freedom. He leaps around ecstatically, discussing all of his plans for what he will do as a free man. But he also credits his freedom to Huck on page 67. Pretty soon I'll be a shouting for joy, and I'll say it's all on account of Huck. I's a free man, and I couldn't ever have been free if it hadn't been for Huck. Huck done it. Jim won't ever forget you, Huck. Use the best friend Jim ever had, and use the only friend old Jim's got now. To be clear, Jim has endured plenty of hardship throughout this novel so far. He's been bitten by a snake, he's been forced to hide himself constantly, and he's been surviving with Huck the whole time. Not to mention, Jim escaped from his owner entirely on his own. Yet, he decides to give Huck the credit. Yes, Huck has prevented Jim from being recaptured a handful of times, but not only has Huck also played several cool pranks on Jim, Jim has also protected Huck. The 14-year-old boy does not deserve sole recognition for a feat that, at most, the two of them accomplished together. Jim's unwillingness to commend his own efforts points to the more passivity in the face of white people. He is unable to stand his own ground, even when it comes to praising himself for his own triumph. When Jim and Huck are traveling around with the Duke and the King, the two con men that I mentioned earlier, the two fake royals are completely caught up in their own heads and enamored with themselves. They are locked in a battle to prove their own superiority over one another, and their determination to feed their egos leads them to concoct outrageous stunts. 
Huck tells the two of them that Jim is his slave, and so they accept Jim as one of their gang and wish to prevent him from being recaptured, but the lengths that they go in order to accomplish this are dehumanizing. At one point, Jim lets them paint him blue, as Huck points out. He dressed Jim up in King Lear's outfit. It was a long curtain calico gown and a white horsehair wig and whiskers, and then he took his theater paint and painted Jim's face and hands and ears and neck all over a dead, dull, solid blue, like a man that's been drowned in nine days, blamed if he wasn't the horriblest-looking outrage I ever see. Jim lets them do this without a whimper. Apparently, he just assumes that the white men know what they're doing and makes no attempt to assert himself. One of the worst offenders of the entire novel comes near the end, when Tom and Huck plot to free Jim. Huck thinks that the smartest plan would be to simply saw off the plank of wood Jim is chained to, and then flee. Tom completely steamrolls over this idea, instead opting to create an unnecessarily elaborate scheme that rivals the adventure books he reads in its complexity. As a result, he convinces Jim to fill his prison cell with all sorts of disgusting little creatures. Jim loathes it, according to Huck. Jim didn't like the spiders, and the spiders didn't like Jim, and so they'd lay for him and make it mighty warm for him. And he said that between the rats and the snakes and the grindstone, there weren't no room in bed for him, scarcely. And when there was, a body couldn't sleep, it was so lively. And it was always lively, he said, because they never slept all at one time, but took turn about. So when the snakes was asleep, the rats was on deck. And when the rats turned in, the snakes come on watch. So we always had one gang under him in his way, and the other gang having a circus over him. And if he got up to hunt a new place, the spiders would take a chance as he crossed over. He said if he ever got out this time, he wouldn't be a prisoner again, not for a salary. This is torture, plain and simple. Even so, Jim endures it. To me, this is maddening. He just accepts that Tom must know better than him. Here, I'm going to pause for a moment and reassure you. I believe that everything in Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is done for a purpose. That includes Jim's characterization. I promise that I will defend Twain and his satire in the end. Just hold on. Now I'll return to the regularly scheduled programming. Jim is also incredibly childlike. This is the second facet of his passivity. He knows very little about the world around him, like a child. He doesn't know what a real king is, as he states. I didn't know day with so many of them. I hain't hearn about none of them, scarcely, but old King Solomon, unless you count them kings that's in a pack of cards. How much do a king get? The question, how much do a king get, is him relating this idea of a king to his own little slice of the world, an action that is a hallmark of childhood development. Twain does not even grant Jim the mental flexibility of a teenager. He also doesn't allow Jim to understand the concept of people speaking languages other than English. Jim instead denies that other languages exist for any good reason at all. This is what he says about French. Well, it's a blame ridiculous way, and I don't want to hear no more about it. They ain't no sense in it. This denial is immature. Jim flat out refuses to expand his cognitive horizons in much the same way that a tired second grader might refuse to learn their times tables. True, his logic reveals the nonsense of human organization. It would, after all, be easier to communicate if we all spoke the same language. But in the world of the novel, he gains no recognition or respect for that. Jim is simply an adult who has childish logic. Jim also believes whatever Huck tells him. Namely, he believes Huck when he perpetuates the falsities of the Duke and the King. Twain spends over a page having Huck explain to Jim that the two con men must actually be royalty, even though Huck knows for certain that they're not. Following this active deception, Huck justifies his action like this. What was the use to tell Jim those weren't real kings and dukes? It wouldn't have done no good, and besides, it was just as I said. You couldn't tell them from the real kind. 
Huck doesn't even believe that it's worth it to tell Jim the truth. He treats Jim as lesser and more ignorant, despite the fact that Jim is an adult man who is probably at least twice Huck's age. Arguably, the only moment in the entire novel when Jim ceases acting like a child is when, early on, Huck tries to play a trick on him. Thick, soupy fog over the Mississippi River causes the two of them, Huck in a canoe and Jim on a raft, to get separated. When Huck finds his way on the canoe back to Jim, who is incredibly distressed, he pretends that he had been there the whole time and tells Jim that the entire event must have been a dream. At first, Jim believes Huck, but then notices how filthy the raft now is, evidence that he had drifted away somewhere. Here, Jim acts like an adult and holds Huck morally responsible, chastising him for the cruel prank. Huck then apologizes, saying that, It was 15 minutes before I could work myself up to go and humble myself to an N-word. Jim gains both a sliver of maturity and a certain degree of influence. He directly affects Huck's behavior through his actions in a way that he never does at any other point. Similarly, the only other moment when Jim exercises real agency is when he decides that Tom needs a doctor more than he needs to be free. Maddeningly, he frames this decision by glorifying Tom Sawyer's supposedly selfless nature. Well then, this is the way it looked to me, Huck. If it was him that is being set free and one of the boys was to get shot, would he say, go on and save me, never mind about a doctor for to save this one? Is that like Mars Tom Sawyer? Would he say that? You bet he wouldn't. Well then, is Jim gonna say it? No, sir. I don't budge a stepping out of this place. Doubt a doctor, not if it's 40 year. Jim places the needs of his privileged white companion ahead of his own, and he does this because he believes that if their roles were reversed, Tom would do the same thing, when he probably wouldn't. Jim aspires to be a 14-year-old white boy. This act is so kind, but the fact that he idealizes Tom Sawyer leads him to contribute to his own infantilization, soiling my perception of said act. The only other person that looks up to Tom that way is Huck himself, and Jim should be more adult than that. Nevertheless, Jim does make a decision that contrasts with the wills of Huck and Tom, so he gains some level of control over his life. However, then, of course, Jim's agency is stripped away by the revelation that he was free almost this entire time. Tom did not help Jim out of the goodness of his heart. On the contrary, Tom's ethical code was entirely uncompromised because Jim was already free, and Tom was just looking for a little fun entirely at Jim's expense. Remember, Tom tortured Jim. In the end, all of Jim's efforts to escape to freedom are entirely for naught. He and his actions do not matter. Everything is completely secondary to the will of his white former mistress. Clearly, Jim is submissive and ingenuous to an unnatural degree. Twain spent years painstakingly crafting this novel, and indeed it is a masterpiece. His satire is biting and ruthless. Everything in this book is there for a reason including Jim's passivity and immaturity, as frustrating as it is. My question is, what is that reason? And what are other possible applications of it? During my investigation, I came up with two possible explanations. The first one is that Jim is so infantilized because Mark Twain is trying to make a point out of saying that black people have to be as obsequious as possible in order to attain any sort of respect or freedom on an individual level. History supports this interpretation. White America has a history of stacking the deck against people of color and expecting them to conform to unreasonable standards of humility and servitude that contrast with stereotyped ideas of their race in order to be deemed quote-unquote acceptable. 
Furthermore, the tech supports it too. Jim gains Huck's respect when he decides to prioritize Tom's health over his freedom, basically serving Tom. Huck does not gain a magic appreciation of the equality of black people. On the contrary, he calls Jim quote-unquote white inside. In modern terms, that statement is most analogous to Jim being quote-unquote one of the good ones. The doctor seconds Huck's statement by saying this. He ain't no bad N-word, gentlemen. That's what I think about him. Again, he essentially says that Jim is one of the good ones, a standout among his race. This approach to racial equality is starkly conservative and has survived for over a century. In the late 19th century, Booker T. Washington, a racial reformer, taught that the road to acceptance for black Americans was through assimilation and peacefully acquiescing to the will of white people, much like Jim does. He stated that they had to accept segregation for the time being. Today, a version of that ideology is personified in characters like Michael Orr in the movie The Blind Side from 2009. Michael is shy, kind, and completely unthreatening. He is also remarkably passive, and it gets him a position in the NFL. His white adopted mother, Leanne Tui, is the driving force behind all of his actions. Every other black character in the film, all the ones who fail to fit the mold of the servile and quote-unquote decent black person, are demonized, sending a message that mirrors my explanation. In order to gain individual respect, black people have to be subservient to white people. They have to be, quote-unquote, one of the good ones. My second explanation is that Jim is so unnaturally childlike because Twain is trying to illustrate that black people cannot attain any measure of equality in America on their own, no matter how emasculated and nice they are. True, Jim gains Huck's respect as an individual, but Huck's white inside mindset is hardly something that leads to actual equality for anyone beyond Jim. As for the doctor, he doesn't actually believe that Jim is a human being. To him, Jim is still an N-word, no matter what. And in the end, Jim has no power whatsoever over his own fate. He is kind, and Tom Sawyer still tortures him. And every step throughout the novel that he takes towards freedom, possibly other than initially fleeing, is completely undercut by the will of his white owner. This event underlines the fruitlessness of the efforts of black people to better themselves within an oppressive white societal structure. It doesn't matter what Jim does because the white people around him will always be more powerful. This line of thinking is present in the philosophies of W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey. Du Bois presented the main opposition to Booker T. Washington's teaching. He thought that the only way towards progress was protest and acquiescence was useless. Garvey was one of the most radical voices advocating for black people. He led the Back to Africa movement, which was designed to encourage black people to escape white American oppression by migrating to Africa. As for a more modern example of a Jim-like character whose niceness is pointless, I present Wayne Hubler in the book Breakfast of Champions, when written by my favorite author, Kurt Vonnegut. Wayne is an exceptionally hard worker who idolizes his boss, Dwayne Hoover. He is, in all respects, a perfect employee. Yet, near the end of the book, Dwayne Hoover goes crazy and beats Wayne Hoobler up because he considers Wayne to be an unfeeling machine rather than a man. He doesn't believe that Wayne has free will. Jim and Wayne are similar, except Jim gets a happy ending of sorts that Wayne never receives. Their lives are ultimately decided by the white people around them, and they never get a proper say. Those are my two theories. That Jim acts quote-unquote correctly and is therefore rewarded by white society with freedom. And that despite Jim acting quote-unquote correctly, his efforts are ultimately in vain because no matter what, he never gains any power over his own life. Looking over my theories again, I have to say that I prefer the second one. Especially because it is more in keeping with Twain's dark, incisive tone. People tar and feather and shoot one another in this novel. 
The message that black people just have to be as accommodating and servile as possible does not fit in with that trend. Mark Twain hates the racist people in this book. He even fails to lionize his protagonist, which is an impressive feat, considering that this book is written in first person. And in the end, Huck famously decides to light out for the territory because civilization is just too rotten. I think that the message surrounding Jim should be similar. Civilization fails Huck by treating him as a scoundrel, and it fails Jim too by never accommodating his needs and desires as a human being. Whether or not leaving is the right answer, it's certainly Twain's answer for Huck, and it shouldn't be any different for Jim. Also, I abhor the quote-unquote one-of-the-good-ones narrative, and I honestly loathe the film The Blind Side because both gloss over the realities of racism. Black people have been discriminated against far too much as a whole for my first explanation to be satisfying. Therefore, I believe that Mark Twain intentionally made Jim so passive to illustrate the idea that black people across the board have less power in American society than white people and less power over their own lives. I'm Natalie Parker. Thank you for listening to my take on Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn.